Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we interview women executives, leaders, and entrepreneurs. And you're listening to the Well Woman Show, where motivated women achieve fulfillment and well being. You're listening to the Well Woman Show. Take time for myself by coming to things like Well Woman Drinks, to be accepting of myself no matter what. Step away from judgment as much as possible. You're listening to The Well Women Show. Just, you're going to be in for a good ride. I don't regret anything. Everything I've ever done, I've learned from it, one way or another, good or bad. Being a little bit selfish for yourself, you know, put your own oxygen mask on first and then give what's left. I'm a woman. I would prefer to, to tell my own story. My story, though it's very personal, is universal. You're listening to The Well Woman Show. And now your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hi, Giovanna Rossi here, and welcome to another episode of The Well Woman Show, where I interview women leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs about their lives and their road to becoming and being who they are today. Are you at the top of your game professionally, but feeling burned out, or finding it hard to focus on your goals, or unfulfilled personally? Or are you in transition, simply juggling so many things, you find it hard to take care of your own needs? Well, you're not alone. We all need to activate the four universal superpowers— These are the internal strengths and abilities we all already have, but don't use all the time. Superpowers can be cultivated, and they include awareness, intuition, action, and acceptance. Toward the end of the show, in a segment called Superpowers for Success, I ask my guest about her superpowers, and the answers will give you the strength, perspective, and power to live a well-woman life. I'm so happy you're here, so thanks for tuning in. This episode of The Well Woman Show is brought to you by Collective Action Strategies, supporting organizations that support women and families, and by Well Woman Life Movement Challenge Quiz, your resource for living your best life. If you're in burnout or major transition, this is your time to figure out what's holding you back from making the changes you need to make in order to live your fullest, most joyful life. The cause of all of our challenges, personal or professional, can actually be rooted in the lack of internal superpowers and or external supports. Our Well Woman Life Framework tells you which stage of the Well Woman Life Cycle you're in and what to do about it so you can truly live your best life. You can find out more at wellwomanlife.com slash quiz. I'm so thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico, a monthly green healthy lifestyle publication. And for support from High Desert Yoga, promoting optimum physical health, clarity of mind, and spiritual inspiration for all. Hello, hello, and happy summer. Um, Welcome to the show. If you're new to the show, I want to give you a great big welcome. Um, I have a very special show for you today. And if you are a regular Well Woman Show listener, welcome back. Um, And just as a side note, if you haven't checked out the quiz definitely head over to wellwomanlife.com slash quiz. And it's a quick two question quiz that helps you identify where you are in the well woman life cycle, which stage you're in, and what to do about it. Um, And you can have a specific challenge in mind when you take the quiz, and it really helps you figure out where you are and what you need to do to move through it. Um, it's an awesome tool. Definitely want you to check that out. Um, I am coming to you midsummer. If you're listening to the show as it's released in July 2018, it's um, we're in the thick of it. It's it's really hot. 
and the kids are home. Um, they're doing daddy camp, so they are doing all kinds of activities, but it means the house is like full and bustling and noisy. So I had to <laughs> leave and go get a uh, co-working space, which I love, 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 love. So um, anyway, today I have a very special interview, which is a part one interview, and then next week will be part two, because we had so much to talk about. Today's topic is a young professional's journey to success. And hopefully by the end of the show, you'll be inspired to identify your journey and follow your intuition. I break down with my guest the actual steps she took to get into law school and then land a major job on the Hillary Clinton campaign. So we go into great detail about like, well, what did you say? You know, how did you, how did you do that exactly? So um, it's super interesting. My guest today is Alessandra Biaggi. Before launching her campaign for state Senate, she served in Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration in his council's office. During the 2016 presidential election, she was the deputy national operations director for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Her run for office is preceded by a decade of advocacy, national leadership, and service to the people of New York, interning for Congressman Joseph Crowley and uh, the Kings County DA's office, the U.S. Attorney's office. I mean, she's just got a bunch of experience here. Uh, Biagi was born in Mount Vernon, New York. She's a graduate of NYU and Fordham Law School, where she was a member of the Fordham Law Review. In 2014, she attended the Women's Campaign School at Yale University. Which, by the way, I had to take a drink of water. It's so hot. Which, by the way, um, I think she was telling me that the Women's Campaign School actually uh, promotes my show to their students so that they may, uh, you know, first of all, learn something perhaps on the show, but also be a guest. So that was awesome to learn. Thank you, Yale University, for doing that. Um, and, uh, so without further ado, let's go to the interview, but actually I am going to just say a couple more things. Um, you can continue the conversation in the Well Woman Life community group at wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook. Join us over there for more, um, in-depth diving deep into all of these topics. And also, I really want to invite you to New Mexico for the Well Woman Life Retreat and Women's Leadership Summit on September 9th and 10th. It's a fabulous place to be in September. It's lovely, lovely. And um, you will have a chance to be around other women who are diving deep into these topics and really want to live our best lives. And so if you're... Um, getting something out of these shows and you want to actually interact in person and get a whole lot more out of of it and uh, leave with a real clear idea of where you are in your life and where you're gonna where you're going, what what steps you need to take, um, definitely join us. You can check out wellwomanlife.com slash events for more information. Now to my interview with Alessandra Biaggi. All right, welcome. I have with me today Alessandra Biaggi on the Well Woman Show. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be on. 
Yay. All right. I'm going to get started. We're, because we're on, we're taping this on audio and video. So if you're listening on the podcast, you can jump over to YouTube to watch if you want to. Um, so I want to introduce uh, Alessandra, and then we'll get into um, sort of what she's up to and who she is. And she actually um, is running for state Senate in New York. Uh, but before launching her campaign for state Senate, she served in uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration in his council's office. And during the 2016 presidential election, she was the deputy national operations director for Hillary Clinton's campaign. So she has done a ton of advocacy, national <laughs> leadership, and um, just general service um, for the people of New York, interning for Congressman Joseph Crowley and working at the Kings County DA's office um, and the U.S. Attorney's office. So tons and tons of experience. I, I don't feel like you look old enough to have <laughs> done all of this. But um, she is from New York. She um, went to NYU and Fordham Law School. And um, she attended the Women's Campaign School at Yale University. And I'm so excited to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be on hearing you say that. Actually, certain parts of my journey were very painful. So when you said certain ones, I was like, oh, just because it was it, nothing was a straight line. It was it was a few tries sometimes just to get to where I wanted to go. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, we want to hear all about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, isn't that interesting when you hear someone read your bio? You're like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like I remember, I'm like, oh, I remember that. Uh-huh. Isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, let's jump in. And um, I definitely want to hear about what you're up to now with running, running your mm -hmm. campaign, but let's just back up. And um, I want to hear a little bit about your journey as a young professional mm -hmm. navigating through all of these different jobs that I just listed in your bio, but ultimately ending up as um, with a very high level position in Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Yeah. So this is, um, as I, as I just said, it's actually, uh, it was not a straight line. It was um, definitely curvy. And I didn't sometimes think I would actually even be where I ended up, but as I always say, and I want, I'm starting it with this for a reason. There were there were whispers inside of myself, which is my intuition. I like to say, and every time I would get quiet and I would listen to it, then I would know that I was going in the right direction. So I always knew I wanted to be in politics. I always wanted to work in politics, and I always knew also from a young age, probably because everyone around me and my family was a lawyer, that I wanted to be a lawyer too. And I also thought, oh, well, you must be a lawyer, and then that is as a requirement to be in politics, which is not true at all. In fact, I kind of wish I didn't go through law school because I don't really have a desire to practice law as I as I as I do um, creating policies and passing laws. So, anyway, um, I went to NYU. It took me two times to get into NYU, um, which was challenging. But I graduated with an almost perfect, in fact, a four point GPA. Um, which was fantastic. I graduate from, from NYU and I applied to law school and I get into no law schools. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Wanted to go to Fordham Law School. Didn't get in the first time. Applied the second time. I didn't get in. The third time. Got in. Um, I got in. Great. Graduated from law school. I then thought, well, 
I want to be in politics. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with the legal process, when you graduate from law school, there are two tracks. It's either you're going to a law firm or you are working in public service. So I had gone to my career service and I was like, I really want to work. I mean, in neither of these things, I want to just work on a campaign or in politics. And they didn't really know what to do with me. So I was kind of left to my own devices. So I became a legal fellow for uh, New York State Homes and Community Renewal, which is New York's housing agency dealing with issues of affordable housing, et cetera. Um, And then that was challenging because I was making $13 an hour while my friends were making, you know, almost $200,000 a year in law firms. And I stayed the course because I knew that was what I wanted to do. On or around that time, I went to Yale, the Yale Women's Campaign School because I thought I want to run for office someday. Okay. Let me just ask you, backing up real quick, because you had a lot in that story. Um, Yeah. When you applied for law school and didn't get in, and then you applied again and again, did that take three years? Because you apply yes. once a year. Yes, it did. And like, what did you do in between? So, I, when I graduated from NYU, I was like, okay, well, I'm not working because <laughs> I don't want to do anything. And I wound up applying for a job in, in LA. I got this job for an entertainment lawyer, um, and I was exec- his executive legal assistant for a year. So, I did that for a little while. I then applied to law school again. I got into the night program at St. John's University. I accepted. I went. Um, I worked very hard and I applied to transfer um, from St. John's to Fordham. And I got into Fordham. And as I was on my way out of St. John's, the deans there were I'll never forget this. They said to me, but you're doing so well here and you'll probably be the editor in chief of the law review and you probably won't make the law review at Fordham Law. So you should stay. And I I said, thank you very much. You know, I hope you wish me well. I'm going on my way. And I when I got into Fordham on the third time, um, I applied for the law review and I made it in the first week, actually. So (laughs) it's just a, a testament of like when you put your head down and you focus and you don't listen to the naysayers, right, which we all have around us, you can get done what you feel like you want to get done. Although it's not easy. There's a lot of crying involved. In that process. Well, yeah, I mean, that sounds like such determination and um, just sticking to what you knew to be true for you. That's right. And, and not following, you know, I always say this, that comparison is the thief of joy. If you compare yourself to somebody else, it, it doesn't even make any sense because somebody's life and journey is, you can't, it's not your life and journey. So it, it wouldn't make sense to compare, but it's, that's easier said than done. It's very oh, yeah. hard. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's a big one. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so then what happened? <clears throat> so then I worked as a legal fellow. I go to the Yale Women's Campaign School and I was then still looking for a job. So I, I do this campaign school and I meet women from all across the world. Now, not even, you know, I'm from New York. So not people just from New York, New Jersey, California, but people from like England and Pakistan, women who wanted to run for office in places that you wouldn't think that they would want to run for office in being brave enough to not only be trained, but then to take their training back to their home and to actually run. Um, So I left that program. I got a job at the New York State Governor's Office of Storm Recovery. I was an assistant general counsel there. I oversaw the small business program, infrastructure and community reconstruction programs after Hurricane Sandy in New York. And that was was one of um, the ways that I helped to just make the communities whole again and make sure that people had what they needed. It was a challenging job, but it was the best job that I've ever had, I have to say. And I think it's all testament to the fact that the community within that office, it was not bureaucratic. It was like a government startup. And so nobody really knew what they were doing. And we were all very much in it together. Um, And then around the same, like I had done that for about almost a year and I did a fellowship simultaneously on the weekends called New Leaders Council. 
training program. They have 40 chapters across the country. I did it in New York, local and state politics. Okay, great. I thought this is another thing I can put on my resume when I'm ready to run for office one day. And I go to that um, that that training on one weekend and I sit next to somebody who asked me if, how my job was and if I wanted to work on a campaign, to which I replied, no, thank you. And to which he replied, are you sure? Because, you know, there's a can't, and I, I just thought to myself, who are you and why do you keep pushing on this? And it turned out that he was the director of talent for the Clinton campaign. And he took my resume and he gave it to them. And this was about March of 2015. And nobody was really getting, I mean, there were very few people who were working behind the scenes, but that's how I got onto the Clinton campaign, which was all kind of certain happenstance. Yeah. Yeah. So now Go over this again, because I may have you you talk pretty fast, and I I may have missed (laughs) this detail. But how did he find you? Like, where? What? How did he notice you? Yeah. So we were. I mean, we were just in this fellowship program together. Fellowship program. Okay. Yeah, the fellowship program, and he just sat next to me and was just talking to me and asked me, you know, do I like my job? What am I going to do next? I I think I said something to him like, I'm going to work in the White House, and he was like, How do you plan to get there? I didn't have an answer, but I thought it didn't matter. That's my goal. I'm going to go there. It makes no difference. And that's when he asked me if I was going to, if I wanted to work on a campaign. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Full disclosure, he is my fiance, Ah. which is very (laughs) funny and kind of ridiculous if you think about it. But we worked together on the Clinton campaign for almost two years. And that, that, I mean, that... I'm sure I would have applied to the campaign anyway, but I wouldn't have gotten on that early. It was May of 2015. I mean, there wasn't even the primaries yet. So it was a very early time to join a presidential race. I had never worked on a campaign before, did not know what to expect. It was just a wild, wild ride. Oh, yeah. Very wild. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Yeah. And so at what point did you start dating and get engaged? So we started dating a few weeks after I joined the campaign, and then we broke up after we lost the election. We were living together. We broke up. And this is actually part of the, the journey, too. It's important, I think, for people to hear the, the the hard stuff. We lose the election. It was devastating. I mean, and we can talk about that if you want to. It was We were in the Javits Center that evening. It was awful. It was just really awful. And we were living together at the time, and then we broke up. And not only did we break up, we broke up, we lost the election, I lost my job, and I moved out of our apartment. So it was this complete and utter destruction that that had happened in November, December of 2016 in a way that I had never experienced. But what that did for me was it was, I mean, it, it broke apart everything. That was my reality. It allowed me to recreate what I wanted my future to look like. Not what I thought it should look like, but what I wanted it to look like. And being that it was a time when we had, of course, you know, lost and all these people now wanted to get involved in um, in politics that had never been involved before, I thought, let me share my story. And so I started teaching civics for four months after the election. And it was uh, an intro. That was another interesting experience because that's where I met a lot of women who had never done this before. And I talked about being a woman in politics and what it's like and how you even get on a campaign and what it's like to work as a woman in politics. And that was, um, it was, it was an excellent experience and it allowed me to sometimes speak to audiences of two people who would show up or 300 people at one point when I did a talk for NYU. And that's kind of where in the back of my mind, I thought maybe I'm going to run sooner than I thought. And so who did you teach civics classes for? Like through what avenue? 
any and all. So cool. how it started, I mean, this is kind of how like most things start. In the back of my mind, I was like, what do I need right now? I'm devastated. Okay, I need community. How do I build community? I'm going to create a sex curriculum and just start showing up to things. So after the election, my friend Claire Wasserman, who you should definitely speak to, she's amazing. She started Ladies Get Paid. Um, she asked me to come and do a town hall for her. And the town hall was all women in New York City who were crying and devastated and just wanted to feel like they were not alone and also wanted to hear about my experience on the campaign. So I did that. And from there, it kind of just, as with all things, if you kind of put yourself out there, people came up to me, do you want to come and talk to my friends over here? Or what about this? And it put in my head, there's something bigger here because there's an unmet need. People want to be together. So I reached out to my alma mater and NYU wrote back and they said, I could, I had offered to just do an, I'll do an interview in your, in your magazine. They said, no, come and do a talk. Let's do a talk. It sold out within minutes. 300 people came. It was just, I mean, I I can't really, it it was the the magnitude of it was so uh, important in terms of my journey because it allowed me to realize, okay, I can not only, you know, as a woman, right, who's doubting herself constantly thinking I can sit in front of this audience and I can talk about my experience and I can resonate with people and make other people feel less alone. And then I feel less alone. And it just kind of kept going from there. And one of my talks that I did, one of the last talks I did was with um, Diane von Furstenberg on why we should all be more millennial. It was actually remarkable. So it was an interesting journey. Wait, now are you millennial? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. I I didn't know for sure. So, okay. Yes, yes. Oh, interesting. All right. So walk us through a little bit of the journey through the Hillary Clinton campaign. So you get on the campaign, never worked Mm -hmm. on a campaign in your life. What position did you get, first of all? Yeah. So I started out, actually, it's a good question. I started out on the vetting team and I was a deputy vetting um, director. So I was overseeing all of the vetting that was not the donors, not finance. So we were vetting and vetting, for those who don't know, is like um, it's like a check, a background check. They do it in the White House. They do it in almost every government agency to make sure that anybody who's let in is a safe person or it's a safe space or whatever. Um, we vetted airplanes. We vetted volunteers, students. I mean, just all different types of any anybody who wanted to have contact with the campaign. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine the volume. <clears throat> it was just I mean, it was like a conveyor belt, as I call it. Like, it just didn't end, actually. And about doing that for almost a year, I thought, I don't think I, it was very much sitting behind the computer all day. Not my strength. I don't like to sit behind a computer. I like to talk to people. So I started to seek out other teams. And like I always do, I mean, it was, I have to say, changing teams on a campaign, not easy, especially in the headquarters. Um, There's a lot of personalities, a lot of feelings. You know, what does it mean about my team if you leave my team? It just wasn't the right fit for me. So I went to the head of the state's team and I asked for five minutes with his assistant. I got in there for five minutes and I said, I'm not going to waste your time. I know that there's an opening on your national operations team. I want it. I will work my, you know what off. And that's it. And I left. And the next day I was offered the job. So it, it's a, it was a testament of like, okay, see the thing, speak the truth to it. I didn't know if I was going to get it. I mean, there were so many other people who wanted it. So it didn't really, um, it wasn't a shoe in for sure, but it was definitely um, hard work. I mean, I had to kind of inch myself up and I have to say when I started, I started as a, just actually on the betting team. And then I was, then I was the lead that had the leading role. And then from there, I went to um, deputy national operations director. And that was a national operations for 50 states. I mean, I'm an attorney. I've never done national operations before. I had no idea what to expect. It was 
that was just like, I thought the volume and vetting was big. This was 50 states who needed your help right now, all of them right now. (laughs) And that was, you can't prepare for that because sometimes there were 200 emails in an hour that I would get. That's, I mean, unheard of. I've never experienced that. So it was a lot of triaging. It was building the plane while we were flying it because we were in the primary and then had to prepare for the general. Um, it so was really what, yeah. So what what kind of things did you have to do as the national operations director, and how did you, you know, get through those two hundred emails in an hour? Yeah. Like what, what what were the systems that you had to put in place in order to even like <laughs> ha, ha, you know be a coherent like person that could actually do anything? So that's a great question. I mean, we had to make sure that every state had a certain set of procedures. So for example, if like it was like a kind of like a math pro- problem, right? If this happens, then do this. Like, but creating that system for all things. So national operations is actually like the entire bucket of things. It's helping to make sure that we have the right people to hire the organizers in the field, opening the offices, um, dealing with compliance, making sure that we have the budget taken care of, um, making sure that everybody has all the necessities that they need. So all of the orders for the entire country, also all of the merch. So like by merch, any merchandise, right? All of the placards, all of the t-shirts, all of the stickers for each state, um, also supporter housing. So we, this is something actually unique to campaigns and it's a very smart idea. Instead of spending money on staff to stay in hotels, we had a nationwide supporter housing program. And that meant that there were in each state, there were at least several hundred people who had signed up to be a a host for one of our staff if they were traveling. Um, and then organizing that. So there, I mean, if you could just imagine, right, like all the people and keeping everybody happy. So the way that we did it was with systems and creating, you know, and then you also have blind spots. So you don't know what you don't know. And so when there was a problem that arose, which was very common and very frequent, um, there were then openings for us to create a system. So we didn't know all of the things, but we did, we created what we could. Um, and then we just kind of like went with it. You don't really have time to stop and think about, Oh, what did that go? Well, like if it fails, you kind of like get up and go, you don't have, you just, it's so moving so rapidly. So the 200 emails in an hour, I mean, I would just sit there by the end. I had, I mean, I had two screens. I would go back and forth between the screens. I had a, an amazing team of interns that I not only delegated to, but I empowered. They were probably, I mean, 19, 20, one of them was 22, very young. And I just, I mean, I, I taught them the programs and the systems. And I said, this is yours. I am one human. There is no way in the world that I could do all of it. So I made sure that they felt comfortable. But in doing that, what that taught me was that they it, it became possible, right? Like if somebody believes in you and helps you up there, then you can do it too. And I watched two of my interns who were very shy become the, I mean, by the end, one of them was negotiating with, with these vendors and she didn't even <laughs> talk to anybody. And she was like, I'm sorry, that's too high of a price. Well, we're not going with you. It was just such an interesting experience to watch that. And I think that we all, I mean, like we all could do more of it always, but that was just such a wonderful experience for me in that way. Cause I got to also mentor these young women and it was, it was really, it was really real. That part of it was so neat. And, and this is the part that kind of it killed me on the day of the election when we were, it was pretty clear we were going to lose. We were sitting under this room, um, in the Javits center under the stage and they were looking at me to like, tell me what, to, like, what's going to happen? What do we do? And I, 
it was like a very hard emotion to deal with. But one of the things that came out of my mouth, the first thing that came out of my mouth was I'm going to run, which is like, I mean, I don't even know where that came from, but that was my, that was my way of fighting back against what I didn't even know was about to happen. So yeah. So what time was this? Like 10 PM. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about that in a minute. Cause I definitely want to hear that whole story. But, um, you mentioned blind spots and, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know kind of thing. And I think that's one really big challenge in any, you know, if for any leader is to, cause you don't know what questions you have until you have them and then it's too late. Um, so what kinds of things did you do when something like that happened in order to learn from it, but also move on? Cause you were in, you know, everything was in such a rush. Yeah. Yes. So I actually, so I disagree. I don't think it actually is is ever too late. I think that unless, I mean, unless it's like, as I say, like nothing is life and death, but life and death. If it is life and death, and sometimes it is, then you like, like, oh God, like, but that wasn't really the case in this instance. I mean, there were some things where there were threats on, um, you know, people's lives and you have to take that, of course, incredibly seriously and you coordinate with Secret Service but different. It was very different. So, I mean, you kind of just like apologize very, very quickly. There's something that I would always say, like fail, fail forward and fail, like fail, fail fast. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, then that's the only kind of room where you can grow. If you're not moving in, if you're not moving forward and making mistakes then something is wrong, like something is completely wrong because we don't know everything. Right. But you have to have the awareness to realize that like, okay, that was a mistake. I'm going to learn from that and move on and incorporate that very rapidly in your whole quality improvement process. And not take it personally. I mean, a lot of it is like, I mean, apologizing and also making sure that, you know, we did it better next time. So it didn't happen again. I think the thing to learn is also like, if that happened once, then it should not happen again. But it's also, I mean, it's chaos. I mean, a campaign is chaos. It's, and especially a campaign for 50 states for the entire, I mean, there's so many people and things and needs that like you kind of, some things are going to fall, but we did a very good job of keeping the balls in the air. I have to say we um, worked together very closely. We made sure that we had check-ins with our state directors, with our operations directors. I mean, we really were a tight knit group and we trusted each other. And to, to the people who were in the States, right, who were leadership in the States, I mean, I wasn't micromanaging them. They And they had a lot of things where, I mean, they made mistakes too, but I never, it wasn't like, oh, you made a mistake. Like, how dare you? It was like, okay, great. So how, like, there wasn't even time to yeah. to go over it. So it was um, very much to that to that sentiment of fail fast, fail forward, and just get back up. Like that's that's kind of where all the all the magic happens. And when I hear you say apologize, because I talk a lot about language in the well woman life community and, and how women over apologize for things mm-hmm. um, and, and use that language. But when I hear you say apologize, I'm he- I'm actually hearing you say take responsibility. That's exactly like, right. Like own up That's to right. it. Say, okay, yeah. this happened. Instead of what we see so much of is people running away from it and like denying it and like being afraid. And then they just get into it, like it just snowballs into more of a That's problem. Right. That's right. I, I always say that like the first, if something is wrong, it's better to just be like, oh yeah, like whoops, like now what do we do? Right. As opposed to like, oh, I didn't meet. It's such a waste of time <laughs> to go into the whole um, avenue or cycle of, well, I didn't really do that. And there was this person like, who even who cares? Like if you did it, like you did it and you're a human. This is the most, this is like the central theme of like my whole, even my whole campaign. It's like, we're human beings. 
So yeah. like we are inherently flawed. So if we were perfect, whatever that means, which I don't even think that's that word should even exist, to be honest, um, then we wouldn't be a lo- like we wouldn't be human. So we are all human. So there is an element of human error that will happen. And I think what divides people is are those who take responsibility and those who do not. And I want to be around people who are constantly owning up and owning it and not owning up, owning it, because those who own it, then I mean, those are the people who are like you can kind of, you can throw rocks at them and they're still going to go. And in this industry, you have to have rock, you have to be able to um, withstand rock throwing, I think, in order, in order to be able to continue to move forward. Because that's what happens. So on a campaign, and I, I, I've worked on a lot of different campaigns, but not at the level that you did. Um, But, you know, things move extremely fast. And, you're sort of expected to leave your personal life at the door and just like all in, like you're fully committed. Did you, was that a a challenge? I mean, because, because I I feel like things have really changed over the last couple of decades and they, they Mm -hmm. need to change more still, but we're getting there where actually leaving your personal life at the door is no longer expected in the, in the work world all the time. But in a campaign, you know, you kind of just have to, put your personal life on hold and like you go do. for it. Now, I have to say I, th- that's the hard the for me the hardest part was that because when I joined in May I thought well, no big deal like I remember it being 7 p.m. and I was like okay see you tomorrow and people were like where are you going and I was like <laughs> what what do you mean where am I going like I'm going home I'm going to the gym I'm going to like I'll see you tomorrow and they're like oh no 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 like you don't understand what this is like that <laughs> I, I don't know how to, it, it felt like a prison. Like, I, I don't know, like, or not a prison. It just felt like chains and it felt so not freeing. And on campaigns too, there's a lot of, and I'm sure you know this, like there's a lot, like everyone wants, you want to all go out to dinner together. It's like, I've just spent 12 hours with you. I don't want to go to dinner with you too. Like yeah. I want to just sit in silence. And so that was, a. I mean, a lot of, I'll be really candid about this on, on any campaign, but especially on presidential campaigns, if you're in the headquarters of any, of any um, campaign, the next step, if you're going to, if you want to, if you win and there's a next step, the people who are chosen for those next steps are the ones who have shown up that whole time before to all the birthdays and all of the dinners and all of the drinking and the, the, and that was hard because I am someone who does not like to drink a lot. And in fact, I haven't drank since 2016. Um, not, that was something I was like, I don't need this. I need to be very clear about where we're going in the future and I can't have any distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a, there's a culture of drinking. There's a culture of, um, unhealthy eating. And I was so anti that I cannot even explain it to you. So I, it was, there was a friction between myself and the, and the way that, and my fian- current fiance as well. I mean, both of us were very much like, we want to work out and we want to stay healthy. And it was, um, constantly a, a, di- a, ch- a really big challenge, but we were lucky to have each other on the campaign to kind of hold on to. Oh, wow. So he was in the national office too with you. <clears throat> in fact, in the first portion, he was like 10 feet in my first job, <laughs> 10 feet for me. And I, I, I got, it was torture because I, I could like hear him all day. And I was like, I don't want anybody to know we're dating because I'm a woman in the workplace. I'm a woman in like, this is not good. Yeah. And I, I made it very clear. Like, don't come to my desk. Don't talk to me. Like, <laughs> that's awful. Wow. 
Oh my God. Okay. So, um, I, so I've worked a lot in, in politics, but in, in policy too, like at the, mm-hmm. uh, at, you know, the legislative session and stuff. And yeah. I always say that working a legislative session is like going to summer camp. Like it's just, you're all in, like you never see your family, you're eating, uh-huh. eating unhealthy, you know, just exactly what you just described. So how did you, mm-hmm. um, do how did you not fall into that? And like, you know, like, did you literally like bring healthy food to work and, and like go and walk around the block for your break? I mean, how did yeah. you actually, you know, maintain so, that? I mean, I, I was very clear with myself from the beginning that I would not fall into the trap of like campaign lifestyle. Like I was going to create what worked for me, but still be, you know, able to talk, of course, like be with people and like hang out with people. But I, had, I mean, I have very, very healthy eating. Like I did not there. I mean, every time you looked up, there was a birthday or a, a baby or a wedding and like cakes coming everywhere. And I was like, I cannot eat that. Like, this is not going to work. So I made a rule for myself. And it's, I mean, that's a very, that's like kind of the only way that I got through it. I think making a rule that I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to eat that way. And I kind I got a lot of heat for it because I was always coming with salads and like that was one thing. And then I would, I mean, go for runs all the time. We were in Brooklyn Heights, which is right on the water. So there was a beautiful pathway to run. And of course, I was still a member of um, a gym and I would go to the gym and I would, I would just make time. Like sometimes the time, by the way, this is, and people knew this and people did this. Everybody did this. I would, I would go during the day, but bring my computer with me. And the craziest things that I would do is I would have my computer on the treadmill or on the elliptical and be like vetting while I was, it was just like, <laughs> just completely ridiculous when you think about it, but that shows you how consuming it was. So it was carving the time out and creating boundaries. Um, that I, I have to say that was probably one of the, mo- like looking back, I don't have any regrets, but the thing I would have probably done a little bit differently is I would have participated more socially. I would have gone out more because I was so focused on my regimented routine because that was my survival. I mean, I was hanging on to it for dear life because I knew that if I didn't do that, then I don't know, maybe I'll gain like 50 pounds or, uh, you know, I, whatever it would be. And I didn't have control of much, but that's, when I had control up. So that was what I grabbed onto for dear life. And I wasn't alone. It was not just myself. Like there were a lot of people who ate very healthy, went on runs. There was a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's tough. Um, all right. So you're in the campaign, you're, um, you know, national operations director, you're leading a lot of people. Um, who did you report to? So I was deputy national operations director. I reported oh, to the national operations director. Right, okay. Um, my boss, even though I don't really call her, but I don't like that word is like so strange to me, actually. Um, we were, we've become very close friends. Um, her name is Ashley Barber Kevlin and we sat back to back, um, the entire time. And I couldn't have done it without her. I have mm-hmm. to say she, and I, I actually just yesterday was talking to her and I said to her, I want you to understand how much you prepared me for this because her speed was so rapid and I had to, I had to meet her. So, you know, when there's a saying of like, you never want to play tennis with someone who has a worse game than you. Cause like, it's, you're not going to get a better game of tennis. You always want to play some, you want to play tennis with someone who has a better game. Yeah. She had a better campaign game and it rose my level of yeah. uh, efficiency in a way that I'm just so grateful for. So she was, She's the one. It was very cool. 
And were there multiple deputies or just the one deputy? No, just one. Okay. It was just me. Yeah. And so how many people reported to you? Good question. Well, and so there were 38 state directors and 45 operations directors, but the way that it, so it, that, that was like the main structure, but then the way it kind of panned out was that there were then people underneath me who were regional directors, regional operations directors, who then had like a chunk of states, a chunk of states, a chunk of states. So it kind of like all funneled up, but we worked so closely together. So it was very much a melding of, um, there wasn't like, I'm your superior. That was, there was, there wasn't that type of feeling on our team, which I'm very grateful for because that, that feeling is, um, very common, especially in politics of like, I am your boss and like, you will listen to me and do what I say. Yeah. It was encouraged to be equal. And so that kind of leadership and and expectations for leadership really, really matters. And it, and it really comes quite frankly from the top because you have to have that other, that leadership above you. That's also that way. So what, what is important? You learned so much about leadership, I'm sure during that whole campaign. What are some of the things that you've taken with you and like, how would you describe what a good leader is? That's that's a great question. I mean, a good leader empowers others, right? So a true leader, in my opinion, creates other leaders, not followers. And that is so aligned with why I'm running for office right now. <laughs> so that's important to note. Um, but there's that. There's also a level of inclusivity um, and courage. So inclusivity, I want to talk about for a second, because this is important. While I was still on the vetting team, which felt fell under um, the operations at the headquarter operations, we would have a monthly, uh, sorry, a weekly meeting on Mondays. And it was 100 plus people in the room. And there was a table in the middle. And most of the time, the people who sat at the table were the senior staff, or otherwise, or men. And there was just there was something about the fact that I didn't sit at the table often and didn't speak, that really was getting to me because I have never had a hard time speaking up, asking a question. And I was ha- having such a challenge doing that in this, on this team. And nobody was doing anything to me. It was just, I, I had come into this environment where everyone had come either from the White House or from an Ivy League school or from the Peace Corps. And I felt intimidated. And it's also important, by the way, vulnerability is a huge asset of being um, a true and strong leader. So I was very much on the um, just challenged by the fact that I didn't sit at the table. So I read this quote by Elizabeth Warren, which you probably have heard before. If you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. And I thought, no, I will not be on the menu. In seven days, I'm going to be sitting at the table. I went on the Monday meeting. I sat at the table. I didn't die. Nobody told me to leave. And instead of just sitting there, I turned around and I asked the other young, younger women in the room to sit with me. And they were like, no, I'm good. I'll sit on the floor because you would sit around the floor around the room. And over time, more of them sat at the table. So what that taught me too was don't just get there, but bring others with you. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, that was a fabulous conversation with Alessandra Biaggi. That was actually part one of our conversation. We are going to continue this interview next week with part two, uh, talking about her experience on election night, her blow by blow experience of learning uh, of the news of the election results in 2016, as well as her own decision to run for office. So definitely join us next week for episode 126, right here on The Well Woman Show.
That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your Well Woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join us. Our monthly live event, Well Woman Drinks, brings women together to share our successes and challenges as women, leaders, moms, aunts, sisters, and all the other roles we carry. If you'd like to attend a Well Woman Drinks near you, or if there isn't one in your city yet and you'd like to start one, email info at wellwomanlife.com. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and subscribe in iTunes and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening today, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.